Hello and welcome. Thank you for joining me on First Responder Psychological Support. This is Season 1, Episode 9, and I am calling this an intro to treating trauma. Uh, my name is Sarah Gura, and I'm a master's level licensed clinical professional counselor in the state of Illinois. I'm an EMDR therapist and a yoga teacher, and my private practice is the self-care path in Burr Ridge, where I treat first responders. And again, the topic is about treating trauma. But as always, I want you to take a nice deep breath in that expands the chest. And when you're ready, just go ahead and release that and allow your body to get nice and heavy. Maybe spread your toes and push your feet down into the ground. Maybe rock the weight of your feet around on all four corners and just ground yourself. And if your feet are not touching the ground, maybe allow those sit bones to really just sink heavily into whatever seat that you're in. Straighten your spine. If you can, close your eyes and just allow yourself to get ready to listen. When we decide that we want to listen to a podcast, I think it's always important to transition so that we can adjust into that mind space. And in fact, I think transitioning between any activity is important for both kids and adults. It's just like a little bit of a reset. So I wanted to talk about treating trauma because I've been mentioning it so much uh, throughout the first eight episodes of this podcast. And I also want to talk a little bit about what therapy was like for me as a therapist before EMDR and how I treated trauma that way and still use these techniques before I get into explaining what EMDR is. But therapy with first responders was like pulling teeth. It was like wrestling a bull with horns. Sometimes I imagined myself like grabbing those horns and falling to the ground and having to really wrestle so that your trauma could die there in my arms. That sounds a little poetic, right? But I was happy to do that for people. Um, but it was pretty intense. Uh, even some arguing, um, some verbal melee sometimes in those sessions. And it was definitely a talk therapy where you had to be articulate. And if you weren't, um, I would help you to become more verbal with your trauma. And sometimes I would say things like, well, I'm going to put my excavation hat on and we are going to start digging. And that metaphor, I have not thought about actually in a really long time until I was preparing to uh, do this particular podcast, but I did. I felt like I was often digging in the trenches for information to see if I could find out what was holding you back from living your best life. And one thing that I used to present about all of the time and that I was faced with all of the time was that first responders, when I confronted them about trauma and I asked them a question about the trauma, it didn't seem to matter what the question was. The answer was, I don't know. What do you think? I don't know. What do you feel? I don't know. Well, what do you remember? Not much. Um, or a lot, and I can't talk about it. Well, give me a word for it. I don't know. 
sometimes back in back in the day I would um ask you to use metaphors to talk. So my my trauma treatment was, well, if it was a weather, what kind of weather would it be? You know, a dark storm and a tornado. If it was a sandwich, what kind of sandwich would it be? And I would get a shit sandwich answer. Uh, or if it was a color, what color would it be? It's black. But those things at least got you talking and got you moving. Uh, I was surprised how many grown men in the first responder world just could not declare what they were thinking, feeling, and doing. And so the I don't know sentence became a trigger for me. I don't know was a trigger that got me to ask the same question again and again and demand answers while I would hold space for that person. Um, And when I say hold space, I did it with all the love in my heart. I just was patient and I felt comfortable even though you were uncomfortable and I was willing to take however long it would take to get these answers Um, and sometimes I would say five answers or more so maybe the for example question would be why did this incident bother you so much and I would get that I don't know answer and I would say well now you have to give me five answers to my question why did this incident bother you so much And maybe someone would say, well, Sarah, it was sad. And I would say, okay, that's one. What's the second answer? Well, it was unfair. Give me another answer. I don't know. So I would say something like, make something up. Because if it comes from your brain, it'll be relevant. And maybe they would say, well, I didn't like it. And I would prompt them and another answer. And maybe they would say something like, I should have done something else. Maybe there would have been a better outcome. And I would push and I would push until maybe I would get an answer like, because babies shouldn't die, Sarah. And that's when I knew I finally got to that rock bottom, right? When it was finally like, stop asking me this question. Here's the answer. And then I would know, let's work with that sentence. We don't have to work with, I don't know anymore. We can work with the sentence that babies shouldn't die. And that was definitely a pattern that I saw in doing this kind of therapy, that the last answers were evidence that the ego couldn't hold the wall anymore that you guys were putting up. And I would go to work using existential theory, Buddhist psychology, cognitive behavioral therapy, DBT, dialectical behavioral treatment therapy, um, or at least what I knew of it. I would also be using a lot of ego psychology, knowing that you were heavily guarded and defended and resisting uh, getting better, even though it's exactly what you wanted. And um, I would try to provide, you know, some rational thoughts, uh, which later I learned were positive cognitions that shouldn't come from me, but actually from the client. But I would be doing a lot of the positive and rational thinking and some of that reality thinking was was a bummer like i may say babies can die too that's a that's a reality that you and i have to face and that this wasn't the first and it may not be the last call that you will have that is like this and for years and years i watched first responders resist 
I um, got them to give me the five answers. Um, They would look up, they would look down, they would look out my window, they would stare at me in frustration. Um, The tears would well up in their eyes and I remember thinking, I'm not going to give up. I'm I'm not scared of you crying. I'm not scared of you fighting me. Once again, I can hold space. And the one thing that I wanted to do was hold space for that trauma. And I provided a safe place for you to be brutally honest and very, very vulnerable. And I had this attitude that as long as I'm alive, I'm not going to miss your next appointment. So I was pretty wrapped up and dedicated to understanding first responder trauma in that way. And then through the years, you know, I was introduced to EMDR. And EMDR was founded by Frances Shapiro. And what she noticed in her clients was that when they were discussing something traumatic, their eyes would move back and forth very rapidly. And That's how she ended up developing EMDR. And so I want to mention that, you know, sleep is the foundation to your health, right? That sleep is kind of like your mind, your body, your spirit therapy. We know that when you go to sleep at night and you have some delta waves going on that you're not thinking and you're not dreaming because you are doing deep restorative physical work and that the closer to consciousness that you come to, which is your beta waves, um, the more that you're going to do REM cycles, which is dreaming, rapid eye movement, sleep is how we know that you are dreaming. And dreaming is the original human-made, very holistic medicine for desensitizing and reprocessing a lot of information. In fact, all of the information in your life. When you dream, you can dream about what you've been through, what you're going through, and what you're about to go through, uh, what you fear, um, and all the different emotions just comes in through these symbols of dreaming. And of course, first responders don't sleep well, and shift work can really screw with this very natural um, healing remedy. But I always want to encourage people to try EMDR because... It's a therapy where you don't have to talk. It's where you do this internal processing to heal thyself. And to heal thyself, I'm convinced, is to get to know thyself, to understand thyself, which is precious in a chaotic world filled with egos. So we are all starting to understand what I think about life on earth. (laughs) But in EMDR... I call these activation questions. How does it work? How do we get some EMDR treatment moving? Um, The activation questions for me, if you can answer all of them, is probably an EMDR worthy event. So I may say something like, give me three or four sentences about the situation we're about to EMDR. And I will emphasize, I don't want more than three or four sentences. I just want to understand the incident. Because remember, this isn't a talk therapy. I just need to understand for a moment and what we're going to EMDR. And then I will probably ask you to identify a positive cognition. Because whatever you describe probably sounds a little awful. And I'll say, what do you wish you might like to think about this? And maybe you'll answer that I did the best I could. 
from there I'll ask, all right, so when you think about this memory, what is the image that you attach to it? And some people aren't sure how to answer that. So I'll say, if I were watching this on the TV screen and I hit pause at the very worst moment for you, what would I see on the TV screen? And boom, we have our image. I'll hand you a sheet with a list of negative cognitions on it next. And I will ask you, what sentence fits this situation in that image the best? And people might say, I have to be perfect. I don't deserve love. I can't let it out. I'm permanently damaged. They find their sentence and then I will ask them to look at a sheet that has lists of emotions on it. And I'll say, and when you think about that image and that particular negative cognition that you picked out, what are the emotions that you feel? And maybe they'll say sad, upset, angry, um, concerned even, whatever the emotions are that they pick out. And then I'll ask them to close their eyes. I'll say, I want you to close your eyes and I want you to scan your body from head to toe. Where do you feel this memory in your body? And people always can answer that. Now, if they answer, it's in my head, then I believe that they're in their ego and they're being pretty defensive at that moment. And maybe that's another podcast. Um, But many people can feel their traumas in their body because, as I always say, feelings are hormonal and they're chemical and we store memories in the body. There's a neat book, and I can't remember the author, but it's called How the Body Keeps Score. It's kind of an interesting read. Um, But I don't want to digress because my next activation question is on a scale of 0 to 10, 10 being this memory is upsetting to you, where would you rank it then and where would you rank it now? And I ask that because sometimes first responders will say, well, when I was on that call, it was a three, but later it became a 10. And sometimes it's the opposite. They'll say this call was a 10. And uh, right now sitting here, I've worked through quite a bit of it and it's, it's like a five. So that tells me a lot about where you're at, if you're healing um, or if you're in the throes of your trauma. And at that point, I'll go ahead and apply that bilateral stimulation, which was originally done by waving two fingers across the meridian of the human face so that they could keep their head still and their eyes would go back and forth with the waving of the therapist's two fingers. And um, I'm uncomfortable with that. I would definitely be okay with that discomfort if someone preferred it. But it seems most people prefer the buzzing. So I use a neurotech machine and the way a cell phone vibrates, it'll vibrate in each hand alternately. So left hand, right hand, left hand, right hand. Um, You could also use a light where you watch the light moving across maybe the wall or a screen. You could also do tapping uh, where you can alternately bilaterally stimulate tapping. There's also something called a butterfly hug in EMDR. But what we do is we apply the tapping or the buzzing, and I usually count 25 to 35 seconds. And I'll tell you to take a nice deep breath in on the exhale, open your eyes, and I will ask that beautiful question, what did you notice?
I love that question. It's so relevant to Buddhist psychology and meditation practice. And here it is in EMDR. So I'm delighted that the question is not, what do you think? What do you feel? What did you see? What did you do? It's, what did you notice? So EMDR is this beautiful practice of every 25 to 35 seconds, noticing your thoughts, not trying to stop them, not trying to change them, just letting them organically come up and notice them. And typically, if we're on a good round of EMDR, as I might like to call it, um, you will remember that memory frame by frame from beginning to end in a beautiful time order. And we apply that bilateral stimulation frame by frame and see what you notice until the memory gets desensitized to a zero. Now, if you've never done EMDR, it's very difficult to understand what I am saying, or it's difficult to imagine. What do you mean it desensitizes? I've heard people explain it's like a fog. It sort of disappears. Not that you won't remember it. You will definitely remember it, but it's not as vivid. Um, or sometimes they'll say, you know, I was really upset about it, but I, I really don't think or feel that way right now. Um, so when it gets to a zero, I might challenge that to see, is it really at a zero? And uh, once I know there aren't any negative cognitions, negative feelings, negative body sensations, because we'll scan the body as well, see if that memory is anywhere there, and we address it if it is. But once it gets to that true zero, then I will help with the reprocessing by finding that positive cognition from the beginning of this assessment. And I will make sure that it gets to what we call a seven. So when you can think about that positive cognition in regards to the memory, like I did the best I could, um, I deserve good things, I can choose whom to trust or whatever it is, when you can really think and feel that in your body at a seven instead of your negative cognition, then that's the zero and seven and uh, we consider that trauma closed. At least that's the language that I use. Um, but it's not always that easy, unfortunately. Um, what I just described there was, you know, when EMDR goes beautifully <laughs> and easily for both of us. But in the previous podcast, I talked about complex trauma. Um, another way to put that is childhood onset of trauma. I know I mentioned that I kind of think of that as 21 years old or younger. And complex trauma has so many dysfunctionally stored elements to it that we can't just EMDR a memory. There might be a neural network of memories so sometimes I'll hold out my hand and I'll say, let's say that your trauma is the palm of my hand. And unfortunately, we have the thumb, the index finger, the middle finger, the ring finger, the pinky, all of those represent this web that this trauma is kind of holding together in a knot where your ego and your personality and your defenses um, got you all wrapped up in some complex trauma. And in, in that state, you may not even really feel your feelings. You don't have a felt sense, and that has to be developed. Um, also, you know, I mentioned PTSD in the previous podcast, which is 
what I would call adult onset for my clients because I work with adults. It's not that you can't get PTSD as a child, but when there's PTSD that is adult onset because of your career, for example, that could be a single incident or a neural network of similar incidents or an EMDR we say first, worst, or most recent So sometimes there's a bundle there that we have to treat in one of your brain files, if I can describe it that way. And then, of course, to mention trauma, again, something I discussed in the previous podcast, but I said, you know, your trauma is your repetition compulsion, according to Sarah. Um, That's how I know you're not doing well, that something underneath the surface is probably haunting you because you're over under eating you're over drinking, maybe have an alcohol issue, there's sleep disturbances that are significant, you might even have a medical issue and be taking medication for it. And yes, there are research, um, there is research about how children with childhood onset traumas that get complicated by PTSD and their own self-harm that they um, suffer from more medical diagnoses than others. And um, we may also see your trauma or repetition compulsion in your gambling behaviors or your affairs or basically any of your addictions. So because of the complex nature of each human being, we may not be able to just do EMDR as I initially described it. Um, I may have to know as a clinician that we're going to have to do some resource development, which for me ranges from creating a comfortable place for you, like literally in the therapy office, but also in EMDR, we do comfortable place where we apply very slow bilateral stimulation and we create this safe place for your mind to go to that you can sense in your body for a little bit before we end a session. Um, But resource development for me also means some psychological development work. Uh, Before I mentioned that the mind has an ego and a self, and that's not literally, it's figuratively to help people understand that head and heart knowledge and that it has to be aligned. Um, But there's other theories like internal family systems where they talk about feelings coming up that we don't like. I think they call them exiles in that theory. And It employs managers then to sort of take over like your critical uh, personality that judges or tries to control or that gets angry. And because those exiles are still there and those managers aren't helping, um, in the theory, unfortunately, the guy that created that theory said the firefighters come in. I don't use that word. I call them the sabotagers. But what the theory meant to explain was that if you have bad feelings that aren't managed, that's when we definitely can fall into extreme high risk and negative behaviors, including addiction. So now you're becoming your feelings, your managers and your sabotagers instead of yourself. So sometimes I like to also explain the self the way that Eric Byrne talked about it. He he was a theorist and psychologist that created uh, transactional analysis. And that's, that's a neat theory. But to be fast, he talks about like you have this childhood self and it has to become an adult. 
Like biologically, if you age and you survive each year, it's going to become an adult. But you're not done there. From childhood to adult, you have to work out in that adult time frame how you're going to become your authentic, genuine self and not just a reflection of your environment or a reflection of your past. Because as we talked about in a previous podcast, there's this idea of tabula rasa, that there was this blank slate and your parents and your previous life experiences wrote all over that. And you don't realize it, but you become a huge part of that or it becomes a huge part of you. So what this all amounts to a lot of times in individual therapy, unfortunately, is a huge conflict within yourself. And... um that's basically an argument with yourself and against yourself. And this especially happens when not only there's a conflict within, but when you're struggling to move from adult to self, when you're trying to stop with the managers and become the self, when you're trying to shed the ego by becoming more aware of it so that you can be yourself. But Memories get in the way big time and trauma and extra PTSD because of the job can definitely get in your way. And without any psychology education about this, we can get really lost. So I want to make sure you understand that people struggle with implicit and explicit memories. An implicit memory is repeated difficult experiences during your development, meaning 21 or under and some people would say 28 and younger. But um, that's important to realize that the implicit memories that are repeated and they're difficult during your development, especially, that's not exactly sharp memory for some people. Not to say that there aren't explicit memories, um, but an explicit memory or an explicit trauma is so disturbing that it's not integrating, right? You cannot get the self and the ego to align with one another. And those seem to be uh, more noticeable to people and maybe they will admit them better than the implicit memory. But I hope that was clear because I wanna move on to these memories will start to prompt the ego to create some psychological defenses, which is why I say, a lot of you will deny, ignore, minimize, and numb your feelings. And part of your therapy is just to notice instead of deny, minimize, ignore, or numb your feelings. And I'll ask you, I just want you to notice what you think. I want you to notice what you feel. I want to notice um, or help you to notice what's going on in your body when you actually admit that memory, that thought and feeling. But a lot of people do a lot of avoiding, which is the deny, ignore, minimize, numb, and addiction pattern. There's also some idealization that happens. And idealization, for example, could be heard when someone says, hey, I had good parents. I don't want to crutch on my dad. I don't want to blame my mother. Um, the reason that that happens because it is better to be a bad kid than it is to have bad parents. Just think about that for a second. If you are a child and you decide that you have bad parents, that's really dangerous. So this is why children often turn on themselves and why some of you as adults still turn on yourself. So that's a super powerful idea. 
Um, but I want to move on to another psychological defense, which, which is just shame. And shame and perfection are like peanut butter and jelly, you guys. Um, there's a lot of guilt. There's self-blame. There's fear. There's embarrassment. Um, and why would that happen? Why would someone choose shame over healing a trauma? And quite simply, they have the thinking error that shame is easier than facing the actual trauma. So again, I sometimes I have to get through all these psychological defenses before we could even start the actual bilateral stimulation EMDR therapy. Um, and sometimes it can be treated by the EMDR therapy. But again, I want to, I'm trying to be as organized as possible in talking to you about psychological defenses. I mentioned avoidance, idealization, shame, and the fourth one is dissociation, um, which is pretty scary. We see some fragmentation there. Um, we might see the division of parts of yourself, and there could be a severe lack of awareness. And you might say to me, I don't remember. I don't remember much of my childhood at all. I don't remember that memory. I definitely sense denial uh, when that happens. And I understand that that is important because denial is important when we have a very severe trauma. It, it's there to protect you. So I don't think that denial is bad. It's just a sign or symptom that it was pretty severe to you. So sometimes in those cases, first responders will refuse to acknowledge the intensity of that trauma. And so we have to create a safe space so that they can work on it. And in lower functioning clients, which I really don't work with, this is kind of rare um, in first responder land, which is good. But in lower functioning clients, another psychological defense or symptom of trauma is a severe disturbance in regulating their affect. And affect in psychology means emotions and feelings. So what are the negative feelings that we often see that are disturbing? Uh, your level of anger and any sort of bipolar cycling. So in bipolar, we cycle between two moods and we call them episodes. And you can have a manic episode, right? Or you could have a depressive one. So mania is problematic because you think everything's fine, yet everything you're doing is sabotaging you. And with the depressive episodes, of course, you're withdrawing from life, you're losing interest in life. It's very different than a sensation of sadness. It's uh, more severe than that. Or we could say just different than sadness. So this is why an EMDR we have to talk about the adaptive information processing model. Uh, you might hear EMDR therapists say AIP model, and that's what they mean. And basically what that is saying is that your emotional problems originate in your stored memories. They go as far as to say that they were dysfunctionally stored memories so that's why they still bother you. It's almost like a unique built-in warning system to say, hey, this memory has been dysfunctionally stored and I'm going to keep bothering you until we store it in a way that can integrate with the self without upsetting the whole apple cart, <laughs> right? So again, the intention behind all this stuff that you're putting yourself through 
is actually it's to protect you from the intense negative feelings that you would have, but it also prevents you from defining yourself. And that's what I find, of course, to be so dangerous. Um, we need you to be able to define the self. As I mentioned in the transactional analysis, you can't stay the child. We call that arrested development. And we can't just stay in, oh, I'm an adult now, right? That's, that's not a great solution. We want to move you from child to adult to self. Um, but oftentimes the ego or the adult gets caught in that repetition compulsion. And I want to emphasize that again, because in EMDR, they call that relivings, right? So repetition compulsion from Freud and EMDR's concept of relivings are very similar to me. And if you get triggered externally, you are likely to regress right? So let's say you get triggered by, as I've mentioned in previous podcasts, the chief walks in the room, talks to you condescendingly, that triggers you, you regress, and you're like, how come I can't talk to him? How come I like lose my breath and I can't be articulate and I'm not assertive? And that guy walks all over me. That's because you regressed. He became dad, you became this little boy, and you can't stand that about yourself because you know you're an adult and you know that you're a grown-ass person, but for some reason, this person brings out this wounded victim child in you. So that would be a type of repetition compulsion, a type of reliving, and also a regression. But you can trigger yourself internally as well. Um, Again, some people have complex trauma in their childhood. They add a career like being a cop or a firefighter and they get exposed to new traumas, and they're constantly living this life of trauma, and they keep recreating the element of trauma. And that is the work of the shadow that I mentioned in previous podcasts from Carl Jung. So again, why do we have to do resource development? Why can't EMDR just magically desensitize and reprocess any memory? The issue is that it, you have to treat the whole shebang, right? You got to treat the human. Um, EMDR hopes to treat trauma and it hopes to help you um, anticipate your future disturbances so that you can even engage in a safety plan and feel like your adult self. And you can use that positive planning for the future or even in a right now moment. But so often I have to treat the entire person and their personality because what happens is people have these different parts of themselves. Um, Your personality, for example, if you're a first responder, especially when you're actually on duty, that's the part of you that's trying to focus on appearing normal, uh, even feeling normal, or that's the part of you that just wishes that you could be whatever you define as normal and not traumatized. And In a way, that's your state changing. That's another EMDR term. You have this hurt self, and then you have this first responder self. You have a traumatized self, but then you have this role like, well, I'm a husband or a wife, I'm a provider, I'm a mom or dad, and you sort of, you know, blend these identities, but sometimes use your identities to, you know, pull up front and represent the rest of you. And the reason that you have that normal personality front is because you are very fearful 
and you do know how vulnerable you are and you know how reactive you can get if you feel rejected in any way. And so again, this is why in therapy, we may have to do some resource development or what we call the work before the work. Uh, And of course, I always say I'm holding space in therapy for that. I'm holding you in that space so that we can get to the next most important task of your therapy. And that digging or that excavation that I talked about before, if I were going to give it um, like a roadmap, if I was going to verbally give you a roadmap, I meet your normal personality. The one that appears normal, tries to feel normal, and wishes that he or she was normal. Then as I go through your initial evaluation and your negative cognitions assessment that I talked about in a previous podcast, I then start to see your defenses because the more that I peel that onion away and get closer to the center, the ego then wakes up. And when I meet the ego, I can see all your reliving. I can see the repetition compulsion factory. And usually that's where some of that holdup is. So if you can picture, you know, a couple layers of a brick wall, the first layer is your normal self, the one that I see. The second one is all of your defenses. I usually got to wear some armor for that one. The third one that I see is the ego, the actual, that repetition compulsion factory that I just mentioned. And then beneath that, let's say that fourth level is all your trauma right? So that's how heavily guarded a human being is. That's the work of a trauma and a trauma therapy. And I want to also remind you that, you know, this is a pretty intense conversation to be listening to, the conversation that I'm having with myself right now, but you you are listening. And if for some reason this was upsetting or was triggering, I want you to remember that psychology today thing that I referenced before. So you can get on the internet, you can type in psychology today, click on find a therapist, enter the zip code that you are comfortable driving to for therapy, and then you can further refine the the search by insurance, male or female therapist, EMDR therapist, or whatever treatment you're looking for and for whatever issue that you're struggling with. And it will narrow it down to a couple therapists, if anything, in your area. So please make sure if you are really feeling this particular podcast that you uh, consider the idea of going to treatment if you're not already. But in other podcasts, I will definitely be talking a little bit more about EMDR treatment and about how memories are stored, how there are present day triggers and old points of disturbance. So... I will definitely be talking more now that I've introduced the idea of treating trauma, but we'll start here. This is a lot of information. So thank you for listening to First Responder Psychological Support. Again, I'm Sarah Gura, and I'm a licensed clinical professional counselor for first responders at the Self-Care Path in Burridge, Illinois. And with gentleness for this podcast, I'll say do life so it doesn't do you and take good care and stay very safe. All right. Bye-bye.